0: Uh, Now, jumping into Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, we just sang some amazing songs about God's grace and His glory and His forgiveness and what the gospel brings about, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that saves us from sin. Uh, it saves us from uh, living for the wrong thing. Uh, there's a lot of things that we could live for. And one of the things that we've seen within Ezekiel uh, is that idols are, are nothing new. Uh, they may take different forms at this point in time. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the ancients, when they, when they worshipped an idol, they had a physical uh, statue, a god, uh, so, and a god named after that statue. So they had a god, and they made a statue for it. And they would go and worship that god, that idol. Uh, We don't necessarily do that anymore. My imagination is that very few of you have ever encountered idols. Uh, Now, if you go to different countries, you'll find them. If you spend some time in Africa, you will still find literal, physical idols. If you go to uh, uh, any place where Hinduism is practiced, you will find shrines uh, where there are idols that the people worship. Uh, But within the United States context, it's, it's not the norm. Uh, But one of the things that we saw is that idols may not have a physical form that we go into a temple and we worship some God, but idol worship is still very much a part of the American way of thinking. It's very much a part of the way that you and I uh, live if we're not cautious and careful. We can give our lives very easily to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so as we've gone through these chapters, uh, I just keep these key words on here to kind of give you reminders of where we've been, or if you, if you weren't here those weeks, maybe you can read those chapters with this, these key words in mind. Uh, but it, when we looked at chapter four, the key word there was iniquity, and that's to be twisted or bent, irritated or confused, and that's talking about our nature, that when we, when, the way that we approach life without knowing God um, is, is we're not quite, well, not, it's not even quite, we're not as He intended us to be. Uh, the sin and the fall has caused mankind to. Uh, God had an intended uh, a way that we would operate, and that it, His intentions were broken by sin. The way that we, uh, the way that we are at our core, was not what God intended. Okay, and because of that, uh, we live in an irritated or confused state. If you've walked around earth very long without Jesus, you realize that sometimes you feel like you got it all together, and sometimes you realize, I have no idea what I am supposed to do. Um, And that's where we end up turning to someone or something for direction. Um, But we all know that feeling. If you've walked around earth long enough, you realize that you've you've encountered the fact that you don't have it all together. And there's, there's there's an amount of confusion within you about, why am I here, and what is my purpose and why, how did I come to be here and is there, is there meaning to my life and what direction should I take? Um, and we're confused about that. That was not God's intention that we would walk around confused. His intention was that we would know Him and that we would know that He created us as His image bearers in order to then carry His image throughout creation, that we would be people that, uh, made, that, that he, would, he would replicate His image within that that we would then go around this earth, and that there would be many people who knew him and lived like him. He wanted that's that was his intent, but we don't necessarily find that meaning, that purpose. Keyword in chapter five was rebel, and so one of the parts of sinning is that we then find ourselves uh, in an obstinate, uncooperative attitude towards God, and our actions follow that. So we have a, we have within our, our our twisted and bent nature, uh, part of it is that we would push God away. Rather than move towards him, uh, in our, if, we're, if you leave yourself to yourself, you will push God away from you. You will rebel against him. And, and if you're wondering what's that like, just think about being a teenager and your approach towards all authority as a teenager. Um, I was reading a book actually this week, and it's not just teenagers. I was reading a book this week by Tim Keller. Um, and in, in that book, Keller, t- Keller said that uh, uh, the American people in general, he described us as, as a people who have an allergy to authority. Um, and if you think about it, you can recognize that is true of you. Um, many, t- If you've ever been pulled over by a policeman and thought, what a worthless interaction this is, right? You, you just go, I don't want anything to do with this person or the position that he's in. You have a tendency to, we, ha- we have an allergy to authority. And it's even, I mean, it's sort of in our constitution, right? That we would be autonomous individuals, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And that is something for me... To figure out and you to leave me alone in that process and so we have a tendency to we do we have an we have an allergy to authority and so within us is is a desire to sort of push everything away and figure it out for myself now that that might be an okay approach for certain things in your life but if that's your approach to understanding god you're going to miss out on relationship relationship with him Chapter 6, we saw the key word was harlot, um, and that's to abandon someone for intimacy with another. And what we saw within that chapter was that God designed us to have intimate relationship with Him. He designed us, he designed us so that He would know us fully and that we could, we could live out the process, really for all eternity, of getting to know Him fully. That we could, we could know God, not, not just like wonder if he's there or wonder if he cares or, you know, he's not just this sort of distant, uh, you know, force that sort of maybe might do something every once in a while, but mostly he's just sort of watching back, sitting back watching what happens. But instead, God is this, he's this being who created us, he made us, he longs to know us and the deepest parts of our souls, and he longs for us to want to know him that way. Um, we're going to see in this chapter that there's a, there's a child-parent uh, relationship that exists. And if you think about your relationship, if you have children, if you think about your relationship with them, uh, you want to know them and you want them to know you. Um, this last week there were a couple times where, where my youngest boy, Decker, uh, he he just he came and he just he plunked himself on my lap and he just wanted to be with me. Uh, he just wanted me. He didn't really want, he didn't want what I had, he didn't want. You know, it wasn't asking me for something. He just wanted to be with me. Um, And that's the kind of relationship that God longs for us to have with him. That we would go, I just want, I don't don't really care what you have. I just want you. Um, But what's happened is we haven't done that. But instead, we've abandoned that kind of intimacy with God and we've sold ourselves to something else. And this is where idol worship has started to come in. Uh, The key word last week was profane, Um, and profane means to pollute or defile. So God's character is defined by him, not us, Um, and he's revealed it to us out of his grace. He's chosen to let us know who he is through his people, through the prophets, through the pages of Scripture, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. He's decided to let us know who he is, but what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to tweak who he is, pollute who he is, and defile uh, the the, the purity, the holiness of his character. It also means to treat something as common and disposable. And this is what the people of, of Judah that, uh, that Ezekiel is working with, that he's a prophet to, that's what they had very much done with God. They had treated him as though he were something that you could just use and throw away. He's a paper plate. You know, It doesn't really matter. It's just something you can use and then get rid of. Um, and God talked about how that made him feel. It literally said that he's been broken to pieces by that sort of approach towards him. This week, the key word that we're going to see here, the word is abomination. And we've seen this word throughout these chapters, but abomination is a detestable thing or idol. It's something that God looks at um, and, it, and it turns his stomach. Uh, he sees us behave in a way uh, that is, that, is, that is destroying ourselves and destroying others. That's really what idol worship does. Um, and, and, and he looks at that and it turns his stomach. It makes him sick to his stomach that this child that he longs to love and know would push him away so, so badly and so far away and f- try and find life in something else. And, he, and, and as that child goes to try and find life in something else, he sees his child get destroyed and it makes him sick to his stomach. It turns his stomach that his children would go through that, that his children would be subjected to that. And so that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Now, throughout this, um, we've also seen that the Mosaic Covenant, the promises that God made with Moses in Leviticus chapter 26, are really important to understand what's going on. Um, God, God meets with Moses. The people have left Egypt, and, and they're, they're in the desert, and God makes a covenant with them. He makes a promise, uh, an agreement of relationship. This is how I will relate with you. Okay, uh, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And then he talks about how I'm going to teach you right and wrong and I'm going to show you the way to live. And, and if, you, if you'll follow me and you'll recognize me as your God and you'll be my people and you, and you take what I say is right as right and you take what I say is wrong as wrong and then you take the way that I'm teaching you to live those things out, you're going to receive blessing, you'll receive life. If you follow me as your father and listen to what I have to say to you about right and wrong and how to live, you will experience blessing and life. You will live a good life. Now, if you don't do that, then, I'm gonna, then, then I will discipline you, basically is what he says. Now, the discipline that we're seeing here might feel like, wow, that's really harsh. Uh, But what we have to recognize is how long the people have stiff-armed God, how long they have pushed him away, how long they have said, I'm doing something other than, than following you. And the result of pushing God away, as we'll see it in this chapter, is violence and destruction. The further we get from God, the more likely likely we are to hurt ourselves and others. And as God sees us reach a place where all we're doing is hurting others and ourselves, he he, he doesn't just go, well, I'll just keep letting them hurt each other. But instead, he says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to act. I'm not going to allow you to continue to destroy each other. But at some point in time, I'm going to step into your history and I'm going to act. And we see God do this with Noah, right? Right. Uh, the people, uh, in, in Genesis there, it says that the people were—they they had an attitude and actions where they all they were doing all the time was hurting each other. Every intention of their heart was the destruction of someone else. They didn't have good in mind. And so God steps in and, and, he, and he removes Noah and his family, but then he judges the rest of it. And here he's going to do the, basically the same thing with the nation of Israel. He sees his nation and all they're doing is hurting each other all the time. And he steps in and he acts according to the promises that he made to Moses in Leviticus chapter 26. So that's what we're seeing here. Now, Ezekiel, uh, if, if you're new with this or, or you're like me, you just need reminders. Ezekiel, he is a, he's a prophet um, of God. And he's, this, is, this is right b- before Babylon is going to come and destroy Jerusalem. Now the nation of Israel was a great nation, they had, they had three great kings, uh, and, then, and then after the last of the great kings, the nation split. They had, they had some disagreement, believe it or not, it was mostly about money, um, never seen anybody do that, um, but they had a disagreement, and, and they split and so there was a northern nation and a southern nation there was uh, Israel and Judah and Israel has already been conquered by the Assyrians the Assyrians come in and they've already conquered the northern nation the southern nation is still standing on its own Judah is still standing on its own um, but God is going to come in and, and he's going to act. And he's already done so to a certain degree. Ezekiel was, a, was somebody who would have been of the priestly line within Jerusalem. But when the Babylonians came and they, and they removed one of, the, one of the kings of Judah, they also removed a lot of the leadership and put them in exile. And Ezekiel is one of those people who's been removed from Jerusalem and he's in exile. So his, his role here is he's telling the, exi- the people in exile what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So that's what we're seeing with Ezekiel. Now, these first six verses of chapter 8, Ezekiel's going to get a new vision uh, where he encounters the glory of God and the darkness of the leaders of Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that you need to see in this chapter um, is, is this is the leadership of this nation and what the leadership of the nation is doing. Okay, uh, So this, this is a big understanding here is this is the leadership of a, of a pretty broken nation. Verse 1 it says, It came about in the sixth year, Of the fifth day of the sixth month, so this is 14 months after the events of Ezekiel chapter 1. I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord fell on me there. Then look and behold the likeness of the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward there was the appearance of brightness, the appearance of glowing metal. Uh, so, uh, we've seen this where Ezekiel says, God, God is showing himself to me and it's like the appearance, like, what does he say? It was a likeness as the appearance of man. So, it's kind of like a person. I can't really describe what I'm seeing here. It's a little bit beyond me to describe, but I'm going to give it a go. Uh, and then he describes from his, his midsection up, it's the appearance of glowing metal. Um, and from his midsection down, uh, there's the appearance of... Uh, of fire. Uh, he's seeing fire and glowing and, and, and this is, is, a, is an image of God's holiness. Uh, he's different than us. Uh, you wouldn't go touch him uh, because this is serious stuff. So he gets this new vision and this vision is going to last until the end of chapter 11. Um, and in this, God's going to give his, his judgment based upon the leadership of the nation of Judah. So God is going to judge this nation and in these chapters he's going to say, I'm doing it because of the leadership. Uh, It it, this this vision demonstrates the dangers of following those in places of influence who do not know God and God's eventual judgment of such leaders. Uh, So, what we need to see here is who am I following? Do I follow people who know God and have relationship with God? Because there are people of influence throughout our lives. Who are we following? Okay, this is an important question to answer through this chapter. Verse 3 says, And he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. So he actually takes him from exile in Babylon, not literally physically, but in a spiritual sense, he brings Ezekiel to Jerusalem. And to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court. Uh, The inner court would have been a place where uh, only Jewish people were allowed. It was a place of worship. And he brings him to this place of worship. And It says where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes jealousy, is located. Now, this idol of jealousy was most likely a statue of Asherah, a Canaanite goddess, um, and that was it was there was one originally built by King Manasseh, and King Manasseh, one of the one of the one of the bad kings of Judah, then brought this idol into the temple, um, and it was placed in the middle of the temple, this place that was dedicated for for worship of God Himself, um, and the the nation and its leadership had gotten to the point where they had actually rejected God so much that they had brought in an idol and put it in his place. Okay, Uh, King Josiah later on uh, brought that idol out and then destroyed it, but there was very likely another one recreated and that's probably what this idol is. Uh, and he calls it the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes jealousy. Uh, the idea is that God, uh, he, he's, he's a self-described jealous God. And when you think of that, you can't think of like the weird high school boyfriend, but you have to think of somebody that genuinely cares about you. Uh, they, they know you, they love you, they create. he created you, and he longs for deep relationship with you. And, and when we give ourselves to something else, he's rightfully... Jealous. He's rightful to say, you're, you're intended to be my possession, but you've given yourself to someone else. Verse 4, And behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain, which are the events of chapter 3, where Ezekiel had a different vision. But he's saying, the same God that I saw there is the God I'm seeing here, and he's getting ready to show me something. Then he, God said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes towards Raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. Uh, So there were different gates into uh, the temple, the temple compound, and one of these gates is called the altar gate, just simply because of its proximity towards uh, to the altar, which was in the sanctuary, uh, where where worship towards God was intended. Um, and instead they find the idol of jealousy at that entrance. So you, you have to imagine you're, the people are going to where they think they're going to worship the God of the Bible, the God of, the God of their forefathers, uh, the God who they, they believe brought them out of Egypt, the God who they believe made a covenant with them. They're headed there to worship him, but instead when they go to enter it, they find another God. So the leadership has actually steered the people in a different direction. The, the leadership is not steering the people towards knowing God. They're steering the people towards worshiping someone other than him. Okay, So God is provoked by this. I have this group of people, and my intention is that they would know me and that the leadership of, that, of these people would lead people towards me, but instead they're directing people away from me. And he said to me son of man do you see what they are doing the great abominations with the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary but yet I will still I will you yet you will see still greater abominations That's a really amazing phrase there he says so that I would be far from my sanctuary uh, the, the people it, it's not that it's not that God left the people it's that the people pushed him away God, God didn't one day look at his people and go, oh, I'm out of here, I can't deal with these guys, too much work. Um, you know, Rebellious, obstinate, fighting me, I quit, I give up. That's not what took place. But instead, it was, a, it was a repetition of push him away, push him away, push him away, push him away, to the point where he's distant. And what that's done is it caused the, the leadership has caused the people to be pointed not towards God in relationship with Him, but away from relationship with Him. Uh, instead of being pointed towards knowing God, they're being pointed towards worshiping something other than Him. And it provokes His jealousy, and it also is, it's pushed Him away. Now we get to see three different groups of leaders within, within this nation and what they're doing. Uh, the first group here in 7 through 12 is the elders. Um, these are respected and wise men charged with judging and disciplining the people. Um, so this is a group of people you can, this would be like our judicial branch. Um, their job was to, this is right, this is wrong, and if you do wrong, we're going to judge you for that, right? Uh, this is, it's, it's like our judicial branch now. Uh, they were wise, respected men, and that was their job. And now what we're going to see here is at best they're a group of hypocrites, Verse 7, then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. Uh, so I entered and looked, and behold, from, from every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things, with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall around So this phrase here, creeping things and beasts and detestable things, these are uh, idols of worship probably taken from Egyptian gods. Um, One of the relationships that the nation had was with Egypt. Um, And they, they, they would often turn to Egypt for help. It's actually what's going to eventually bring the Babylonians to, the Babylonians finally get ticked off enough, was the king that was supposed to be their puppet goes to, goes to Egypt for help, and the Babylonians say, no more, we're coming and we're destroying you. But So they have this relationship with Egypt, and part of that relationship has led them to worship false gods. Now these would have been false gods that the people would have, their ancestors would have been around. Uh, when they were brought in, when they were brought out of Egypt and into the desert, uh, the first thing, one of the first things they do is they they create a false image and they start to worship it, right? So this is part of this is their heritage. Part of this is what they've always known because the people were were surrounded by it, okay? But it's become a major part of the worship of this group of the leadership. Now, there's an interesting uh, verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul equates idol worship with the worship of demons. He doesn't say it's just a wooden stick or some statue that has no life in it. He says that, that behind that statue and behind that idol is a spiritual force that you are worshiping. This is part of why it would turn God's, God's stomach to see his people worship it. Put it, put it like this. Uh, think, of, think of someone that you know and you care about. Take your child. And your child gets deceived by someone. Uh, they get on the internet and somebody on the other end is pretending to be one thing, but really they're a creeper. And they, they start interacting with your child and then they build trust with your child and then they ask for things from your child that your child should never give them. That would turn your stomach for your child to be in that situation. If someone deceived your child to the point where they started giving away the intimate parts of their lives to somebody who was pretending like they wanted to help them, but ultimately all they wanted was to take from them. That is the same idea behind idol worship. It's something, an idol is something that promises you something, right? It was the God of war or the God of whatever, you know? This God was promising something to you. If you worship this god, this idol, you'll get this thing. But it could never deliver. Could never actually give you what you wanted. And what Paul says is behind that that statue is not not just lifelessness, but there's a spiritual force on the opposition of God that is trying to deceive and destroy you. Now, for us, we go, okay, but I don't have any idols. I don't worship a statue of Artemis. I don't have a statue of an Egyptian god. I don't don't have these things. That makes it all the more difficult to identify them, frankly, because we do have them. But instead of having an identifiable object, it's more like a mindset. It's more like a worldview. It's more like uh, an object uh, of, of money. It's more like uh, a thought process of pride. It's more like, it's, it's not something that I could hold in front of you and go, this is your idol. If you would smash that and get rid of it, you'd be okay. It's probably not that easy. But to think that you have no idols, you have nothing that you have given yourself to that you, should have given, that you shouldn't, but instead give yourself to God, uh, I think would be a pretty uh, short-sighted thought process. It would lack the evaluation of who you really are, but this is the danger behind it. Now, verse eleven, we see these leaders and standing in front of them. Standing in front of them, these idols were seventy elders of the house of Israel. Um, and this guy's name. Uh, I recently bought some software, and in this software, there's a there's an entire book. Um, it's it's uh, pronouncing biblical names, and I haven't read it yet. Um, so. I'm going to do my best. Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer. uh, This was an incense burning uh, uh, thing that they wore around their neck for acts of worship. um, With his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. So these 70 elders, uh, we've talked about who they are. Uh, this is probably following the division of elders that Moses did in Exodus chapter 24. Um, respected for age and wisdom. They're, they're, they're there to judge and guide and discipline the people. Now this person, Jazaniah, uh, the son of Shaphan, he was, he was, Shaphan was King Josiah, one of the good kings, uh, secretary of state, and a man who served God. That's who... That's who the dad of this guy is. He was the secretary of state for Josiah, uh, the king that really tried to turn people back towards God, and this man served him. Now his son is completely on the opposite side of the spectrum. And so what you see here, uh, for for this guy's son to be leading idol worship shows how much change can happen in just one generation. Just one generation, uh, things can turn rapidly. Rapidly if you're not paying attention to the idols that exist around you, if you're not, if you're not actually seeking after God, uh, one generation, things can shift rapidly. They can also shift for the good rapidly, which is, which is a good thing. Uh, but spirituality is not something to be taken lightly, but instead we need to take very seriously our approach towards God and what we believe about Him. Then He said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? each man in a room of his carved images. For they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken us. Son of man, do you see what the house of the elders are doing? They're committing these things in the dark. At the very best, the leadership, the judicial branch of this nation, at, very, at the very best, they're a group of hypocrites. At the very best, they could be saying, yes, we're going to uphold the laws of God, but in our own private secret life, we're going to do something else. I don't even think they're that good. I think they're outwardly displaying to people, not just in the dark, but also in front of people, leading people away from God. They're not just a group of people who put on the facade and say, oh, we love God, uh, and then go do something else in the dark. But they're doing things in the dark, and they're also deliberately leading the people away from God. And their, their statement, for they say, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. Well, God just addressed why he's not there a couple verses before. It's not because he forsook them. It's not because he decided these people aren't worth my energy anymore. It's because they've pushed him away. So we see there that the the judicial side of this nation, uh, at the very best, a group of hypocrites, but more likely just a group of people who do not lead people towards God. Verses 13 and 14, we're going to see the women of Judah, the core of the household, do not lead their children to know God, but instead worship false gods, the false god of a dying husband. And, and this, is, this is ironic. Uh, verse 13 says, And he said to me, you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. And he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which is towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, Tammuz is a Mesopotamian deity. Um, he's the husband of Ishtar. Um, and Ishtar uh, was, was this goddess uh, who uh, was, was key to the Mesopotamian mindset. But her husband was someone that would die every fall. Every fall, which is the time of year that, that this is written, every fall her husband would die and then she would resurrect him in the spring with, with, with crying. Her tears would resurrect him. Um, and so it's just a little bit ironic that these women of Judah, they're worshiping um, a dying husband. Because that's who their husbands are. Their husbands are men, as we just saw with these elders. Their husbands are men who are, who are dying. They're, they're husbands who are moving away from God. They're husbands who are going to experience the, God's wrath. And the women actually find themselves worshiping this Mesopotamian deity, uh, which is the same thing. It's just a little bit ironic that they, they're worshiping a dying husband because that's who their husbands are. And one of the key things here is, as is, is, is you think about the family unit, um, now I know for myself, I know different families work different ways, but in this point in time, the, the family unit, the man would have been the one who was going out and, and he was working. He would have been constantly working. And the woman would have been the one home. This is very typical for my household. My wife gets probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten times as much time with our kids as I do. Because I go and work and she's at home with them. And so the the wife really, the, the mother becomes this core of the household. She's the one who day in and day out is revealing grace to the kids and has many more opportunities to show God to her children, has many more opportunities to lead the children towards God. And instead, she's worshiping a dying husband. So this next generation has very little chance of knowing God. Verses 15 and 16, we see the priesthood. These are the religious leaders of Judah. They also serve false gods. He said to me, do you see this son of man? Yet You will still see greater abominations than these. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. So these 25 men, uh, there, were, there, were two, uh, there were two priests from each tribe and then the high priest. So 2 times 12 plus 1 is 25. So this is very likely the priesthood. And the priesthood of the nation is not worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of their ancestors, but instead they're worshiping a sun god. Now, me personally, I might worship the sun a little bit later if it stays out long enough. Um, so I, maybe I get where they're coming from. But they've left God. The priesthood, the people who are, they're supposed to be the representatives of God to the people. They've they've left him. They don't know him. They have no relationship with him. And so as you go through this, you look at the idolatry. It's widespread throughout the leadership. The elders, those who judged and disciplined the people, the women who are the core of the household, and and these these religious leaders, uh, they're worshiping something other than God. The whole structure is moving away from God. And then we see in verse seventeen and eighteen that the actions of worshiping another are not insignificant to God because it brings forth violence and provokes him, and violence on others and provokes him. Verse seventeen, he said to me, "Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing? Is it insignificant for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here? They have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly." This might be harder for us to see. But when something other than God becomes the center of our lives, we hurt other people. He says the land is filled. They have filled the land with violence. And the reason the land is filled with violence is because God is not number one. Something else is. And you might say, oh, come on, that, that sounds, that sounds kind of weird. I think I could not follow God and be kind to others. I think I could be a good moral person and have no relationship with God. And maybe you could to a certain degree on some human standard. But if you think about it, eventually, when we put something other than God as the number one in our lives, we hurt other people. So take this within a marriage relationship. You have a husband and a wife, and if God is the center, then God will fill that person, God will meet that person, um, and he will give that spouse everything they need. And when a spouse has everything they need from God, they, they're freed up to have to take from their spouse. And instead of seeking, I need something from you, you need to give me something, you you approach your spouse by saying, I don't need anything from you. Instead, I realize that I'm here to bless you. I'm not here to take from you. I'm here to bless you because I have been filled by God. I have everything I need from Him. You can do the same thing with lots of other relationships. Your approach to your children. If you're filled and, you, and, and all your needs are met by God, then you don't need to live vicariously through your children. You don't need them to be this perfect kid. You don't have to have them get perfect grades. You don't look at a mistake in their life as this major explosion that you could never get through. Because if you put your kid as your idol, that's what you'll do. But if your kid is someone that you realize I'm stewarded to take care of this person and guide them towards God, then when they make a mistake, when they blow up, when there's an issue, you don't go, oh, no, my world is turned upside down. You go, okay, this is an opportunity to teach and guide my child because God has me here for that. I receive everything I need from him, and this may seem really bad, but really what I have here is an opportunity to guide them towards God. You could take that and you could do it with a whole bunch of different relationships. But if you need something from your spouse, if you approach your spouse as somebody who you have there, you've you've put your spouse on this pedestal where you worship them above everything else, you're going to approach them in a manner where you say, I need something from you. One of the gods of the the Greek uh, pantheon, one of the gods was the god of family. The God, and, and, and so we can make family this God where we, we have to have something from them. My wife has to perform. She needs to do these things in order for me to be fulfilled. And if she doesn't do these things, I've got a gaping hole. Or my children, they have to be this child and I need them to be athletic and I need them to be smart and them—and and then they don't end up being some of those things and they feel crushed by the weight you've put on them and you feel crushed because they didn't measure up to these standards. And you could do this with lots of different things. You could make money, number one. You make money, number one, you will mistreat people. Guarantee it. If money becomes... Think about some of the companies maybe you've worked for in your life where money was number one. Did people matter? No. And so that's the point here. He says, they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. They've taken me out of my rightful place. They put something else there. And because they put something else there, they will hurt others there was a god of sex right you make sex this idol and you worship it and i guarantee you will hurt other people i don't care what anybody says within our society the intimacy that exists within a sexual relationship is not light it's not cheap if you engage it you will give something away and you will take something away and you can't get it back Okay, so that's what God is saying here. He's saying they have filled the land with violence. They're constantly hurting each other because they've rejected what I say about right and wrong and how to live. And that has provoked me, him, God, repeatedly. He says, for behold, they are putting a twig to their nose. That was a part of one of the rituals of sun worship. Uh, It's a little bit vague. Uh, We don't fully understand it, but it, it was part of the ritual of sun worship. Um, Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry my ears in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. And you think, why? Why is that God's approach? Why will He not have pity? Why will He not listen? And we talked about this last week because they have treaded down a path in the opposite direction of Him too long, and they've reached the end of that path. And at the end of that path, He says, "I will judge." And there's a spiritual picture here that within our own lives we pick a path, and it's either towards God or away from Him. You can say there's lots of paths, but there's two. Uh, there's variables on the one away from Him, but there's two. You're either moving towards Him, you're either moving towards Him, or you're moving away from Him. And He says, if you reach the end of that path where you are moving away from Me, when we hit the end of it, there will be judgment. And there'll be a point in time where you will stand before God, say you leave this earth today, you get in a car accident, and you leave this earth today, you will stand before your maker, and the statement will be, I never knew you. And you'll look at him and say, I never knew you either. And you'll go different directions because that's what you've been doing all your life anyway. But that doesn't have to be the case. See, this is where the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in is because Jesus paid the, the price. The, the penalty of our, of, our, of our rebellion against God, is what, God would, is what any king would give any rebel. But when Christ died on the cross, he died as a rebel for us. He died next to rebels and as a rebel so that we could be saved from our rebellion. He paid that price. And then when he rose from the dead, he offered us not a, not a, not a broken nature, but a new nature, a whole nature as God intended it. And, and then he offers to live with us. See, these people, they're in darkness, and they wish to have fellowship with light and glory, but it doesn't work that way. When you turn on the light in your bedroom at night, it's light. When you turn it off, it's dark. They don't go together. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained by your own affections. You are restrained by the thing that you love more than God. Now, in a like exchange, I speak, to, I speak as to children, open wide to all of us. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness, and what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, a false god? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what, judgment has the, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? for we are the temple of the living god just as god said i will dwell in you i will dwell in them and walk among them and they and i will be their god and they shall be my people that's a promise in leviticus chapter 26 i will dwell in them and walk among them and i will be their god and they shall be my people therefore come out of their midst and be separate that's isaiah 52 says the lord and do not touch what is unclean and i will welcome you I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So within the gospel of Jesus is are words like repent, confess and repent. Within that gospel, those are those are key words. Right? And so that that is an action upon our our will. Uh, that That is something that within us we make a choice. I will, I will confess, I will, it just means to agree with God that his ways are right and my ways are wrong. I'll confess that. Repent means to turn around, to go the other way. So if we're, if we're choosing a path and we've chosen a path in the opposite direction of God, part of the gospel is the word repent and that means that I'm not going that way anymore, I'm going this way now. And I'm not going to turn back that way. And that doesn't mean that you always move perfectly towards God. One of the great descriptions of our relationship with God uh, is one that Chip Ingram uses, and he says that our relationship with God is usually like two steps forward and one step back. It's not that we get it perfect. We will make mistakes. We will do things on our own. But in the end, I want two, three steps towards Him, and I don't really want to step back, but I realize that I'm human, and I will make choices that don't always line up. But in the end, I want Him. And that's repentance. I want him, not me. Okay. Uh, And so this is the gospel. It's movement away from darkness and towards light. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, and he knew what he was implying when he said that, and so did everybody who was listening. The question is, will you listen? So to the Christian, you need to evaluate who you follow, and if they're deserving of that. If you've made that decision, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not not moving away from him. I'm moving towards him. The question you have to ask is, who are you following? Like the leadership here within this nation, who are you following and are they deserving of it? Some of us follow political parties. Some of us follow pop culture things. Some of us follow, we all have things that have influence on us. The question is, do they deserve it? And second, we need to consider what it means to be separate and to take the Great Commission seriously. He says in Isaiah there, and and then Paul quotes it, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. So how do do you as a Christian say, I'm not going to be like this world around me, but I am going to take the Great Commission to make disciples seriously. I'm not going to follow the ways of this world, but I am going to be in this world so that I can share Jesus with others. What does that mean? One of the most common perceptions of Christianity, and I don't care what book you pick up, you go to Barna and do a survey, uh, you go to um, you pick up uh, one of them called Good Faith, you can pick up uh, a book called Unchristian. The two things that people outside the church look at the church and say on a regular basis is they're judgmental and they're hypocrites. They, they don't actually care about me or love me. They just want to have a ramrod that tells me what's right and wrong. They don't actually care about my heart and my situation. They don't, they, don't, they don't do what Jesus does throughout the Gospels, where you see Jesus looks at a group of people and it says that he feels compassion. It literally means that he, he wells up with emotion inside of his stomach. And, and when he does this, is he looks at somebody who the culture, the religious culture says, no way we could never have anything to do with you. Every time Jesus feels compassion, it's for somebody that the religious culture says, we could never have anything to do with you. And so we as Christians could do what the religious culture of Jesus' time did, and we could look at people around us and we could go, whoa, 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 gender identity issues, I could never have anything to do with that person. Whoa, 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 whoa. struggles with, with, with sexual sin, I could never have anything to do with that person. You know, they follow the, the donkey, they're a Democrat, I could never have anything to do with that person. Amen! Yeah, right? <laughs> but that's what we do. We, we take on this religious elite, We're better than you, and I'm so much better than you that I could never have anything to do with you. That is complete opposite of the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ looked at those who the religion said they could have nothing to do with, and he bubbled up inside with compassion and moved towards them. That means that if somebody's struggling with gender identity in your family, you don't go, that is ridiculous, I could never have anything to do with them. How stupid. It means you go, what does that even mean? How do I have a conversation with that individual and show them that I care about them? And then once they know I care about them, there might actually be a door for me to walk through to share Jesus with them. So as a Christian, those are two questions you have to ask. Who am I following and are they deserving of it? And what does it mean to be separate and take the Great Commission seriously? Uh, to those who are not followers of Jesus, uh, the gospel of Jesus is speaking to you. If you came here this morning and you don't, you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus as Lord, you, you're walking in a path in the opposite direction, the gospel is speaking to you. And it speaks in some terms that are kind of hard. Because the gospel says that at the end of the path of moving away from God is an eternity where you will be apart from Him. That, that, that's a hard statement. But it, but it is a choice of your will. If you want to keep moving away from him, he says at the end, I will grant you that. But it doesn't have to be that way because the gospel of Jesus has dealt with the penalty at the end of the way. He's dealt with the penalty at the end where judgment should be. And he took that judgment and he died for you and he brought that upon himself. He loves you that much. And he wants relationship with you that much. And so when you look at Jesus, you know, part of part of us is, is, is our will. And we have when we look at Jesus, we have to say, what choice have I made with him? But even a deeper part is will you allow Christ to impact your heart? Will you allow that kind of love in? Because he wants that relationship with you. More than your will. It's a movement of your heart to say, I want him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you show us yourself through your word, that you've revealed your character, you've revealed your kindness. You've revealed the fact that you've made us for a deep and meaningful relationship with you. And when we go away from that, we find ourselves in a situation where we are unfulfilled. And because we're unfulfilled, all we can do is take from others. And when we take from others, you describe that as violence, and that violence, that taking from others, is something that provokes you towards action. In this situation with your nation, it provokes you towards action that is going to bring another nation to judge them. You're going to carry them away into captivity, and they're going to remember that you love them. For us as individuals, uh, God, that is something you do for us as well. Um, You you act in our lives. You bring things into our lives. You bring your word and you bring people who know you and you you bring circumstances that might seem like they're crushing us. All of those things could be something that are showing us our great need of you. And so I pray for those who do not know you yet that are here this morning uh, that they would hear your word. Uh, that they would listen to the love that you have shown them. That they would confess that your ways are right and that they would turn the other direction towards you and make a decision to say, I will follow you, not just because it's the right decision, but because I see your love for me. And then for those of us who know you and have made that decision to follow you, God, will you show us the areas where we still don't have quite a good understanding of who we're following or why? Will you show us the areas where we're following somebody who isn't quite you? And will you show us what it means to be holy, to be separate, but also to engage a lost and dying world with the amazing good news of you and your love that you showed us on the cross through your son, Jesus. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.